Welcome to No Baller. I am Chris Rawl. It is Monday, July 19th. On today's show, we had two incredible sporting events over the weekend. Game five of the NBA Finals and the British Open in men's golf. Uh, It's about these two things and the always changing legacies of professional athletes. Before we get there, I will give you one reason why gambling should be legal in the state of Utah, my hometown state where I live. I bet Jordan Spieth going into the final round of the British Open at plus 550 to win outright. Now, if you know me, you might think this is strange because my greatest gambling win of the prior year was betting Colin Morikawa to win the PGA Championship, where he stormed back on Sunday. I bet him outright at the start of the tournament. I watched it uh, with my buddy who also had a ticket there. We're screaming and shouting as he charges and comes back and wins. And it was the greatest gambling moment of the prior year. And he's there in the mix. And for reasons unknown, I chose Jordan Spieth uh, and then proceeded to watch Colin Morikawa jump out to a lead and just boa constrictor the entire field. There's nobody in golf that is more demoralizing to watch when you're trying to root for a comeback than Morikawa being at the top of the leaderboard because he just doesn't miss any shots ever. Uh, and, And strangely enough, I already knew this because I bet him to win the PGA Championship, a year ago. So yes, I'm an idiot. We know this. Uh, This is a continual reoccurring theme of life in general and also this specific segment. So today's reason why gambling should be legal in Utah, because it will remind you of what you already know. And now a word from our sponsor, Traeger Grills. With your masquerading and you Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. One of the more complicated yet enjoyable aspects of following and watching sports Uh, is the always changing legacies of players and teams. That's a word that is thrown around constantly within this particular world. Legacy, 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 legacy. What does it mean? Uh, What does this team loss mean to the individual? What does this great performance from an individual mean to a team? Uh, And legacy is interesting because, A, it encompasses a long period of time. And when you follow all of that, uh, it's really cool to, you know, parse through your own knowledge and interpretation of the events and come to your own conclusions But also, uh, it gives us a chance to really reassess and consider new opinions uh, in real time. That's part of what makes live sports so exhilarating, is that I can sit down over the weekend and watch Game 5 of the NBA Finals and the British Open in golf, uh, and I can be continually surprised by what's happening. And I can come in and go, hmm, I was really wrong about maybe this particular player or this team or this golfer. Uh, and then I can leave the weekend and go, man, there's a lot of maybe new opinions that are starting to form in my mind about all of these players, you know? So these two sporting events, uh, they really encapsulated a lot of that particular thing, uh, the change in legacy and how when it's happening in real time, it's really cool to be a part of because again, you take that information and you assess it and you come to your own conclusions on what it means to this player and this team. So I want to start with the NBA Finals. Um, Saturday night, Game 5, awesome game. Uh, Down the fourth quarter, it's everything that you can possibly want in a 2-2 series. 
uh, just the pressure. The everybody's kind of tightening up. Some people are coming through. Some people aren't. The Bucks end up pulling it out. I want to start with one particular player, Drew Holiday, person who I've talked about pretty constantly throughout these playoffs, mostly for bad reasons. Uh, because my very first thought after Game 5 was done was, where the hell did that performance come from, from Drew Holiday? 27 points, 13 assists, 4 rebounds, 3 steals, 1 block, 12 for 20 from the field, 3 for 6 from 3. That is very important, because if you followed him this playoff year, you know that the shot has come and gone, and mostly gone. Uh, In Game 5, the biggest game of their season up to this point, it was there. But I go through his game logs throughout these playoffs, and I go, man, you know, just within these finals, Drew Holiday, he shot 4 for 20 in a game, 7 for 21, 4 for 14. I go further back in these playoffs, and I look over some of his shooting splits, and I go, there's a lot of other performances in there like that, you know, 4 for 12, 7 for 19, 4 for 14, 6 for 16, 5 for 23, 2 for 11, 6 for 17. For the playoffs, shooting 40% from the field, 30% from three. Paints a picture of a very inconsistent offensive player. But one that in the past we know has shown the ability to come out and ball on offense. Uh, Probably the defining series of his career up until this point. And he doesn't have a lot of playoff experience. But the defining series was back when he was with the Pelicans and AD. They played the Blazers in round one. Uh, He was one of the major reasons that Dame Lillard struggled greatly within that series. Holiday also brought it on the offensive end. The Pelicans swept the Blazers. And at that time, I kind of reassessed what I thought about Holiday. I go, man, this is a pretty competent and quality uh, two-way starting point guard. you know. And that's part of the reason why Milwaukee traded for him, because they thought that he was an upgrade over Eric Bledsoe. Yeah, we're willing to give away two first-round picks and two first-round pick swaps, uh, because we think he could be a piece to the championship puzzle. And throughout the playoffs, I've questioned that a lot, mainly because of these shooting splits. And it seems like every single Bucks game I'm watching, I'm going, man, has he just lost the ability to shoot? What is going on here? Now, there is a bright spot, even amidst those shooting woes, because the defense is always there for Drew Holiday. It's the favorite aspect. It's my favorite aspect of his game. Uh, and after the Bucks win game four, when he shoots four for 20, I loved his attitude, because coming out of that in press conferences, he's going, hey, you know what? We won. Yes, I shot very poorly. My teammates lifted me up on that side of the ball. But most importantly, I know that I can always find a way to affect a game, even on nights that my scoring and shooting is not there. And that's my personal favorite measure of a player. Can you affect a game when that is not there? The one thing that I think shines the brightest to casual and hardcore fans alike, did you score? Did you score efficiently in this game? That's really easy to pick up on. When that's not there, how can you affect a game? You know, that's what really turns good players into great players and great players into all-time players. Because when LeBron steps on the floor in a playoff game, he could shoot 0 for 15 and always find a way to positively impact a game for his team. It's what we're seeing with Drew Holiday's teammate Giannis. Uh, He is finding so many different ways to impact a basketball game every time he steps onto the floor. So Drew Holiday has done that to his credit, even amidst all of these shooting woes. And I want to read a quote from Ramona Shelburne of ESPN that ties into The other side of the ball, that defensive side, the side that is always there without fail for Drew Holiday. Holiday has been phenomenal against Phoenix's megawatt backcourt of Chris Paul and Devin Booker. According to Second Spectrum, in the 268 matchups in which Holiday is the primary defender on Booker or Paul, they're averaging just 22 points per 100 possessions. 
Against all other Bucks defenders, the duo is averaging 39.7 points per 100 possessions. Holiday has forced Paul into an uncharacteristic 10 turnovers and Booker into eight. End quote. So we know the defense is there. And game five, it's when the other side of the ball comes into focus. Because that side has most certainly not been there throughout the playoffs, at least consistently. Um, but the one way that you can always alter perception uh, and that you can change your legacy and you can make everybody forget what has come before is that in the very biggest game of your life, you know, you put together the finest game of your career when you consider the stakes. It's 2 2. NBA Finals, Game 5 on the road, you're a four, four-and-a-half-point underdog, and you come in and you play the fantastic defense that you've played your entire career. More importantly, you accentuate that with one of your best offensive performances, 30, or 27 points and 13 assists on great shooting numbers. Uh, that's how you go about changing somebody like me who's sitting at home watching it going, I didn't really think Drew Holiday was capable of doing that. There's nothing that I've watched in these playoffs up until this point that made me think the biggest swing player of game five of the NBA finals was going to be Drew Holiday on both sides of the ball. So if the Bucs win, uh, this is how legacy kind of works. You know, People just always remember, hey, Drew Holiday, you remember that game five of the NBA finals? It doesn't really matter what came before. Your teammates lifted you up in other situations and they got you to the position where it's game five and it's 2-2. And then you played the best game of your career. Uh, and indeed, like he spearheads an all-time, all-time sequence of game five. One of the most memorable sequences you could possibly find in a basketball game. Um, the steal of Devin Booker, you know. The, Mucks, or the Bucks are nursing a one-point lead. Under 30 seconds to go. Booker comes in. Booker, who's been awesome in his own right. Holiday sinks off his man, comes in, tears it away from him. Now he's off and running. Uh, there's under 15 seconds to go. And I'm thinking, pull up, get fouled, make your free throws, three-point game. And instead, he sees Giannis screaming down the court. He throws an alley-oop that in real time, I'm going, oh no, what are you doing? Why would you even throw this? And then Giannis is catching it and smashing it down. And Paul's fouling him. And it turns into just, A, an all-time sequence from a basketball perspective. But B, there's all these things that are now getting passed around on Twitter as this is going down. You know, the slow motion replay of everything that went into this particular sequence. The steal, the rundown court, the lob, the oop. Uh, and it's an all-time piece of filmmaking almost in its own right. It's this cinematic experience where you're looking and seeing in slow motion everybody. Not just the players, but you're looking out into the crowd. Which... <laughs> oh no, oh yes, oh no. Just everything that could possibly go into the roller coaster emotional experience of being a fan, you're seeing it reflected on the faces of everybody in the crowd in slow motion. Uh, all of the hope that's going into, we've stormed back, we have the ball, we're Phoenix, we have a chance to take the lead. Oh no, it's getting stripped. Oh no, Holiday's throwing an oop. Is this good or bad? Giannis is dunking, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and it all starts with Drew Holiday. The dude who makes the steal, the dude who makes this incredibly ballsy pass, and actually the dude who this will kind of be forgotten, but Giannis goes to the line up by three, misses that free throw, and Drew Holiday's the one who tips it, then Giannis tips it back. Milwaukee gets possession, they get fouled again, they hit a free throw to clinch, and, and that's ballgame. Um, that's how you go about changing your legacy in real time. Uh, and I mentioned Giannis, the dude who's dunking who has been 
far and away the best player in these NBA Finals. He's brought it every single game. Not one dud out of five games. I want to read a tweet from StatMuse about his performance so far. No player has ever averaged 30 points, 10 assists, 5 rebounds on 60% field goal percentage in a final series until Giannis. 32.3 points per game, 13 rebounds, 5.6 assists, 1.4 steals, 1.2 blocks, 61.2% from the field. End quote. Giannis is having uh, just a monster, I mean, uh, beyond monster series. It's like a true super, super duper duper star coming out party. And he teams up with Holiday on this game-clinching alley The breathtaking athleticism that we know from Giannis, just from another planet, uh, the thing that really separates him from his own peers, the most athletic people on planet Earth, uh, because he can come flying down the court and catch the ball in midair and stuff it in and then flex and stare down the camera and all that kind of stuff. He's got 32 points in the game. He's got nine rebounds. He's got six assists. He's 14 for 23 from the field. He joins Shaq, again, the person he gets most consistently compared to, as the only players in the last half century to have 13 straight playoff games shooting at least 50% from the field. Again, like Giannis is bringing it every single night in these finals. He's brought it every single night when he's been healthy in these playoffs. Uh, and, and even considering all of that, the flaw that we know about Giannis still remains. And this is a very interesting aspect of the legacy discussion. One that I, I'm always thumping my head against a wall uh, when people like bring stuff like this up because I look at it on one side and the common complaint about Giannis is always, he can't make his free throws, he can't win like that. you know. And my retort is always, you can. It's just dependent upon the people around you in situations. Um, Shaq had that in his career. That's why he won a bunch of championships. He had Kobe, he had Wade. Uh, and Giannis is, yeah, he has a noticeable basketball flaw, but to this point, you can still cover that up because he does everything else so freaking well that if you just have people who can cover that particular thing up, then you're fine, you know? And within this game, which again, if the Bucks go on to win this series, this series and this game will be legacy-altering for Giannis himself. Even within this game, that flaw remains, you know? He shoots four for 11 from the free throw line in game five. He misses three enormous free throws in the last minute and change of that game. The one that I already mentioned, Bucks up three. He misses it. If Phoenix gets the rebound, they have a chance to tie with 10 seconds to go on the clock. Uh, Drew Holiday tips it. Giannis tips it. Bucks ball. Case closed. You rewind a minute earlier and Giannis gets fouled. He goes to the line. The Bucks are up three. He misses the first free throw. He misses the second free throw. Uh, and that gives Phoenix an opportunity. They come down, Paul gets a bucket. That's why they're down one. That's why they have a chance with the ball in hand, the following possession to take the lead. Um, but when your team picks you up, that stuff goes out the window because we can just forget about the flaw. Again, you're always going to be dependent upon your situation. Always. It doesn't matter how good you are. I can't stress this enough. Watched over the course of LeBron's entire career. We're watching it now with Giannis over years prior and even within this own year. Uh, you miss those free throws, and if Phoenix comes down and Booker doesn't get stripped and they hit a bucket and go on to win, that is the talking point coming out of the game. Well, yeah, Giannis can't hit free throws, and you just can't win that way, which is, again, is not true. You just need help in other areas. Um, it's an enormous part of everybody's legacy for all of time that you are always going to be as good as your surroundings. It's unavoidable, you know? 
Jordan wins a bunch of titles because he has structure in place. Yeah, he's a fantastic player. <laughs> you know, huh? either the best of all time or on the short list, depending upon your opinion. But he still needs Phil Jackson. He still needs Scottie Pippen. He still needs Rodman. He still needs John Paxson to hit one of the biggest shots in final history. He still needs Steve Kerr to do the same thing against the Jazz. Like, there's so many things that go into this stuff. Game two of this series, um, possibly the best Giannis game of these finals. And the Bucks lose by 10. Uh, game five, not as good of a game, but still a fantastic game from Giannis. But he's four for 11 for the free throw line. He misses three enormous free throws. However, you got Middleton stepping up, played a great game. You got Drew Holiday playing his best game of the playoffs. You got Pat Connaughton coming off the bench and giving him huge minutes, bombing away threes to help cover up those woes. All of that stuff ties in to this change in legacy and how it works. I'm going to mention one more player from this game before we go to golf. Devin Booker on the losing side. Um, Phoenix has lost three straight games in the last two. uh, Just individual offensive brilliance from Devin Booker. In game five, 40 points, 17 for 33 from the field. That's on the hills of a 42-point game four. Two just, again, breathtaking offensive games from a dude who, like, my perception is changing in real time of him and where he ranks within people who are just capable of coming in and taking over a game offensively. Um, he's been the offensive focal point for Phoenix, and his explosions, when they come, have been unstoppable in this playoff year. Uh, you can go down every single round. Starts with game six against the Lakers, closeout game on the road at Staples Center. He scores nearly 50 points. He's unstoppable. That first half of that game, that's quintessential Devin Booker. Uh, you go to the Western Conference Finals, pull game one against the Clippers out, 40-point triple-double. Again, just an unstoppable performance from him. You look at the last two games against Milwaukee, and you go, it's really hard to play better offense than Devin Booker is playing against defense that is so good. <laughs> like it, He's not going out there against bums and, and putting up 40-plus points against just you know, five foot eight defenders. He's going many times against Drew Holiday, the best individual defender in these finals. And then the rest of the time against Chris Middleton, uh, an above average, really good individual defender in his own right. But instead, uh, Phoenix has lost the last two games that Booker has played awesome. So now these, these performances are kind of falling into that lost performances of the playoffs category. Uh, one that I always talk about. Um, and if Phoenix loses this series, then what do we remember about Devin Booker in these playoffs? That's something that I always find to be really interesting. Because for me personally, I just remember this. I go, yeah, I mean, everybody has flaws. Everybody will have games that they're not as good. But very few people can reach these particular heights that Devin Booker has reached. Where he's dropping 40 plus points against the Lakers and against the Clippers. And against Milwaukee multiple times on the biggest stage. Um but, you know, there's also performances in there that are not as good. Just in this series, game three, it's a total dud. He's three for 14 from the field. He's essentially benched by Monty Williams for the last quarter and change of that game. And so this all ties together, again, uh, to this legacy-changing stuff. Just It's never as black and white as we want it to be. Um, Giannis goes on to win a title. He's been so freaking good in this series. He's still bad at free throws. Those are two things that can coexist together. If the Suns go on to lose, uh, 
yeah, Devin Booker had a dud in game three. He was awesome in games four and five. He's been one of the best scorers in these playoffs. All this stuff is true. And so you take all the information that comes in and, and you kind of create your own opinions. And, and you go, how do I feel about this? But you just always remember that it's never as stark as, okay, now the Bucks won and all of these players are great and the Suns lost and all of these players are bad. That's the one thing that I'll always push back on when it comes to talk of legacy uh, in this particular format. So we shift gears to the other major sporting event of the weekend, the British Open at Royal St. George's. And when it comes to legacy in golf, uh, whether fair or not fair, in my opinion, uh, probably not fair, it pretty much boils down to major championships. This is just how public perception works and how media coverage of golf works. You win a major, that means a hell of a lot more than winning eight PGA Tour events. That's just how people think and what they want to believe. So that sets up really prime uh, viewing opportunities when it comes to major championship golf, and especially at a place like Royal St. George's at, a, uh, at an event like the Open, which is my favorite event. So we have a three-way race on Sunday. That's what it essentially boils down to at the start. Um, John Rahm makes a late charge, but too little too late. It's three horses. It's Morikawa and Louie, Ustazen, and Jordan Spieth. All three great stories in their own right. And all three that have really legacy-altering stuff riding on the outcome going into Sunday. Uh, Morikawa and Louie, they've both won one major. And number two, that's a big deal. You know, It jumps you from, yeah, a, a lot of professional golfers can win one major, but you can't really fluke your way into two majors. That puts you on a different pedestal. And for Jordan Spieth, he's looking for major number four. And he's looking to regain that form that was... You know, uh, best golfer in the world type stuff years ago. And then he kind of lost it for years out of the blue. And now he's on that upward trend again. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, we know Morikawa wins. Um, he takes the lead on the front nine after Ustazen has some shaky play. The big swing hole, uh, par, seven, or par five, hole number seven. Louis takes a bogey. He's batting it back and forth between bunkers. Morikawa makes birdie. Uh, he doesn't relinquish the lead from that point forward. Again, as I mentioned at the top of the show, there is nobody in golf right now that is more demoralizing to watch at the top of the leaderboard. As you're trying to make up shots and you're waiting for a mistake and you can pounce, Morikawa, uh, just the best approach player in the world. He leads the PGA Tour in strokes gained approach by five miles. Um, and he just doesn't miss, you know, off the tee, Right down the middle. Approach. Everything's at the flag. Uh, and he can get shaky with the putter. I think he's, you know, I want to say 172nd this year in strokes game putting on the PGA Tour. Uh, very, very below average putter. But when that gets going, you just don't really have a chance. That's what we've seen in both of his major wins. Uh, Harding Park in the PGA last year. And now this week at the British Open. He was one of the best putters in the field. When you combine that with just this rock-solid strokes or uh, approach game, then you're, you're dead, you know? Over the last 31 holes, he has eight birdies and no bogeys. This speaks to what I'm talking about, uh, just this robotic ability to, I'm not really ever going to miss, and the very few times that I do, I'll get up and down, and I'm fine. He only makes four bogeys for the week. People keep waiting for the door to open up on the back nine, and Morikawa is just like, no, that's not going to happen. So he wins his second major, and this, again, puts him into a different stratosphere because... He's young. He's 24 years old. He's the first male golfer to win his debut appearance in two different majors. 
Very first. He won his debut at the PGA. This was his debut at the British Open. He now has two wins in eight major starts, something that has not happened in nearly 100 years. He's got two other top tens in those eight majors. So four of his eight major starts, top 10 finish, two wins. He's got five wins in 50 tour starts. All this speaks to a superstar trajectory moving forward for Morikawa. Again, really like high-level, legacy-altering stuff for him on Sunday. He's young. He's had an incredible start to his career. All these stats that get thrown around, there's a million when you go down the list, and usually his contemporaries are going, uh, yeah, he's done this early on in his career, and he's the first person since Tiger to do this, and he's the first person since Tiger to do this. And actually, two wins and eight major starts, even Tiger didn't do that. Points to the superstar trajectory. However, it is golf. I want to read a tweet from Kyle Porter of CBS. There are so many elite, he could win five majors in a different era guys right now. And so few majors to go around. Not sure anyone will win more than we think they could, but a handful will walk away with far fewer than we once thought. End quote. For me, this is the most interesting aspect of professional golf in present day. There is so much individual talent to go around. But for this legacy-altering stuff, where people care so much about majors, there's only four opportunities every single year to win the tournament that like, really, truly will shape and change your legacy as a professional golfer. So Morikawa, he steps through the doorway to major number two yesterday. And the future seems wide open. But it's golf, which means two things. Uh, First, anything can happen, as we've seen with a lot of up-and-coming talent. And two, there is so much up-and-coming talent. I mean, you go over the last less than a decade and you look down the list of players that seem like they're on this trend of they're just going to start bamboozling the field and, and man, this is a true superstar and how are people going to stop them? Start with Jordan Spieth, who's had this incredible up and down trajectory. Um, you think of players like Rory McIlroy, who he's the heir apparent to Tiger Woods and he's the best driver of the golf ball on planet Earth and he's winning majors and it seems like he's going to win them all and the next thing you know, He's going through what just a lot of golfers go through because it's golf and it's such a mental sport that when you don't win for even a small period of time, you start to question your ability to do that uh, and you start trying to tweak and change. And so now Rory, again, the envy of the golf world with his driver five plus years ago, he's admitted over the last few like, yeah, I'm trying this and changing this and my mental game, it's not as strong. I'm trying to find other avenues there and yeah, I've been tweaking my driver to try to chase down DeChambeau because he hits it even further. And it's just tied into the nature of the sport. Uh, the constant questioning and trying to change. There's so many other players just within the last decade. Dustin Johnson's another great example of, he looks like he's going to take over golf and then there's all these near misses and then he finally breaks through and he wins at Oakmont. And then he's winning a Masters, but it's just hard to win majors over and over and over there's only four opportunities per year and these fields you go down the list of them and they're so deep every single major 
I get ready to bet and I'm down into the 50 to one range and I'm going, I can't believe this person's 50 to one. That seems like a great bet. And then I look at the 20 names above them and I go, oh yeah, there's Andrew Shoffley and there's Bryson and there's Brooks Kepka and there's Justin Thomas. And by the time you get 20 names in, you're going, oh, this is why these odds are what they are. This is why it's so immense for a player's legacy when they win even a second major, which you hear said and you go, well, yeah, that's just two majors. That doesn't necessarily mean a lot. But when you follow the sport year in, year out, you go, two majors is so damn hard to win. So it's impossible to really predict anyone's trajectory in any sport, but it's impossible within golf because of these reasons, because it's such a mental game, because just the whims of chance and nature always play such an enormous role in the outcome that you could be there every single major and never win. Let's look at Louis Oosthuizen on Sunday, a dude who seems like he finishes second in every single major he enters into for the last years. It's just really hard to win. Uh, how can you explain the rise and fall of Jordan Spieth, another guy who was in the mix on Sunday, who was the dude? Uh, he wins the Masters, wins the U.S. Open, he wins a British. He's got three majors under his belt. He's in his early 20s. The future is wide, wide open. And then he inexplicably loses the ability to golf because it's that's the nature of the sport. It's just you can't really describe how this stuff happens, but we've seen it through the course of history. It always does. And so then he, for years, he's battling swing thoughts and just the mental side of the game. And we've seen within the last year, like kind of a mini resurrection. He's on the upward swing and now he's contending it. He's finally, he's won a PGA tour event again. And now he's contending at majors again. And it seems like only a matter of time before he breaks through that and wins another major, but you just never know. You never know with this stuff. So we go back to yesterday and we go back to Colin Morikawa. And for now, as of this very moment, we know that Morikawa is on the upswing. Again, superstar trajectory. What that actually means, where this is headed, who the hell knows? You can't predict it in golf. Um, But when it comes to the theme of this episode and this legacy-altering stuff and how it changes, uh, if his career ends right now, today, yesterday's win, that cements his legacy uh, into very rare territory. Two-time major champion. Um, And for him and for all the people that went there, uh, that's something that never, ever, ever goes away. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This show is produced by Weston Tanner and can be consumed in a variety of ways. You can download it as a podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or the platform of your choice. You can also view it in video form via the Beehive TV app which can be downloaded on Apple, Google, Roku, and Amazon Fire. For more information, go to noballer.com.